Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 4, Episode 2. In the last episode, I summarized Leviticus chapters 1 through 10, and only came across one topic to be covered in the future, Susarin Vassal Treaties. This episode is not terribly different, with a summary of chapters 11 through 21. And with that, let's get started. Chapter 11 is about which animals are clean and which are not. And in this context, the overriding distinction between clean and not are which can be eaten. Clean land animals are those that have divided hooves, chew the cud, and are cleft-footed. Divided hooves simply means that it's divided into two halves. As for chewing its cud, this is reserved for animals that eat food, think grass, that is so difficult to digest that a mere stomach cannot handle it. So they chew it, swallow, digest it a bit, throw it back up into their mouths, and chew it again. Cattle, goats, sheep, and the like, but not pigs, dogs, cats, and specifically, according to the text in the chapter, not the rock badger. I'll add the animal to the very short list of things to be covered in the future. Pigs do have a split hoof, but they don't chew their cud, so they're off the list. Hares, meaning the animal that's essentially a rabbit, are said in the text to chew their cud, but they do not have a split hoof, so no eating them. And if you know anything about rabbits, you may know that they don't actually chew their cud, despite what's written in the sixth verse. And while camels do chew their cud, they only have a single hoof. No reason for this attribute is given, but it was decreed by God. And do note that the animals have to meet all three of the conditions. Animals that meet only two, they're not clean. Fish need fins and scales, so no crustaceans or mollusk. As for birds, there are very specific ones that cannot be eaten. The eagle, the vulture, the osprey, the buzzard, Every kind of kite and raven, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, every kind of hawk, the little owl, the coumarant, add that to the list, the great owl, the water hen, the desert owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, every kind of heron, the hoopoe, another on the list, and the bat. Before getting too pedantic, like writing me to tell me that a bat isn't a bird. Do note that the footnote on this list, at least in the New Revised Standard Version, says that the meaning of the Hebrew words used in multiple places on the list, it's very uncertain. And the prohibition isn't just for eating. An Israelite cannot touch the dead body of an unclean animal. The dead body of clean animals, though, that's not off-limits. Next in the text are prohibitions about mixing different things. Fields cannot be sowed with different types of seeds. Garments cannot be made from different types of materials. Animals cannot be bred with different species. Think of all these as the boundaries that were established for the people to protect them, and also so that they can show their willingness to abide by God. There is a section in the chapter on vomit, including what God himself has to say about it, and how it relates to clean and unclean animals. I'll let you discover that part on your own. 
the middle of the chapter has all sorts of rules and regs about anything that may or will come into contact with something dead. Seeds, water, pots, ovens, all very particular in how it should be handled. Not really the focus of this podcast, but it does make for some interesting reading. For example, if any part of a carcass falls upon any seed set aside for sowing, the seed remains clean. But if water is put on the seed, and any part of a carcass falls on it, it is unclean. To this day, observant Jews follow the dietary laws set out in Leviticus, along with those found in other parts of the Old Testament, well, the Torah to them. Of course, Christians do not follow the rules, but why? In Acts chapter 10, in the narrative concerning Peter and Cornelius, in a vision, God instructs Peter to eat unclean animals. Also, but less directly, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus taught that it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. The rest of Leviticus chapter 11 draws dividing lines between other types of animals, mainly flying insects and swarming things, which is thought to include animals from mice to lizards, As for swarming things, it reads, All creatures that swarm upon the earth are detestable. They shall not be eaten. Whatever moves on its belly and whatever moves on all fours, or whatever has many feet, all the creatures that swarm upon the earth, you shall not eat them, for they are detestable. And that's it for 11. Chapter 12 has the rules concerning childbirth. Think about that phrase. Overall, the point is that Leviticus viewed childbirth as an unclean practice. All of this concerning the flood of bodily fluids that accompanied childbirth. Not to rationalize the rule, but in the era prior to germ theory, viewing a childbirthing woman as unclean did keep others from unnecessarily coming into contact with her, and likely reduced the odds of an infection. Then something a bit unexpected at least with her modern mindset. If the new baby is a boy, the mother is considered unclean for seven days, but does have to wait another 33 days before she is considered fully pure. And it's on the eighth day that the boy is circumcised and considered part of the Mosaic Covenant. But if the new baby is a girl, the mother is considered unclean for twice as long, so 14 days, and is not fully pure for another 66 days. When she is finally considered pure, so either 33 or 66 days, a priest has to perform both a burnt offering and a sin offering for her atonement. But the same rules also apply to menstruation. During this period, a woman is forbidden from going to the tabernacle or touching anything that's holy. And that's it for chapter 12. Chapter 13 brings something even better, skin diseases. The way this episode is evolving, I might not label it as clean in iTunes. Do note that older translations of the Old Testament call this leprosy, but this disease did not afflict the population until later in their history. So, leprosy, it is probably not. But also remember that their use of the word was a catch-all, Our 21st century use for it is for a very specific disease. 
which leads to the question, what skin disease is Leviticus referring to? Things like scaly flakes, itchy blotches, bald spots, open sores. Then the chapter gives detailed instructions to the priest about how to identify these conditions. Instructions like, the priest shall make an examination, and if there is a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and there is quick raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic leprous disease in the skin of his body. The priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not confine him, for he is unclean. But if the disease breaks out in the skin, so that it covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall make an examination, and if the disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease, since it has all turned white, he is clean. But if raw flesh ever appears on him, he shall be unclean. I'm guessing that the priest did not regard these examinations as being the best priestly assignments. Overall, if a person does have such a disease, the priest does not do anything to try to make it go away. Just observation and forced quarantine for seven-day periods. The chapter concludes with instructions on what to do if your clothing develops a disease, which is a curious way to phrase these things. Essentially, what to do if your clothing gets mold or mildew? If it doesn't come out in the wash, burn them. That'll certainly solve the problem. And that's it for 13, but not the end for skin problems. This issue continues into chapter 14. When the afflicted skin finally clears, or maybe better phrased, if it clears, and manages to remain so, then they are expected to offer up all sorts of sacrifices and offerings. Sin offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, reparation offerings. There was also a sacrifice involving two birds of an unspecified species. One of the birds was to be sacrificed. The priest then dipped the living bird in the blood of the dead one. He then sprinkled the blood seven times on the person being purified. But they weren't done. Also included in the purification process was shaving off all body hair. At a minimum, it was symbolic of a total cleansing and renewal. Next, the house where the afflicted person lived was purified. Moldy stones were removed. Stained plaster was scraped from the walls likely along with everything else that had any sort of mold resembling growth. Then the same two birds, with one being sacrificed, was applied to the house. If that didn't work, then your house was torn down and taken out of the city. Nothing was left to chance, and the sheer number of offerings along with the destruction of any inanimate object shows just how serious skin diseases were in that society. And, there was a symbolic implication of skin problems, at least according to some researchers. To the ancient Israelites, skin problems were a reminder of the rotting flesh of anything dead. Curing, then purifying, is symbolic of a victory over death itself. And that's it for chapter 14, and skin diseases. Chapter 15 gets even dirtier. And this is probably the point where I'll give up my iTunes clean rating, at least for this episode. 
The first half of the chapter concerns the male member, and that's what it's called in the New Revised Standard Version. So I'll just go with that. And problems with that particular body part causes the man, along with everyone who touches him and everything he touches, to become unclean. And anyone he touches without first washing his hands, well, they're unclean too. There are the usual expected remedies, including washing everything, for seven days. Then, enter the two birds, in this case either turtle doves or pigeons, and they both are sacrificed, one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. The second half of the chapter gets back to menstruation. After her period, a woman is unclean for seven days, and everything she touches becomes unclean too including if she touches her husband. Seven days for all. After the week, more birds lose their lives. The end of the chapter provides a bit of rationale for all the rags to keep the tabernacle clean and holy. And that's it for chapter 15. Chapter 16 gets us out of all the physical afflictions and back to religious matters. Specifically, the atonement necessary after the tabernacle was defiled by Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, in chapter 10. So, to pull the last several chapters together, dead things are seen as being unclean, and there had been two dead bodies in the tabernacle, so it needed to be cleansed. And the specific instructions for this can be found in chapter 16. All in all, Aaron bathes and dons the vestments, two goats for a sin offering, one who gets set free if he's the lucky one. Yes, the scapegoat makes an appearance. And this goat is set free for Azazu, while bearing the sins of the people. And we're still unsure who or what Azazel is. A ram for a burnt offering, a bull for a sin offering, an incense offering, all of this leading to the atonement for the Israelite people for their sins. And then we learn that this is the first day of atonement, first mentioned in Exodus and covered in the last chapter of the podcast. There's more detail on all of this in the text and in the podcast chapter 3, episode 81. No need to rehash. After all of this, the tabernacle is pure again. The day of atonement would repeat essentially following the same formula, once a year on the tenth day of the seventh month, until 70 AD, and the destruction of the second temple. And that's it for 16. Chapter 17 begins with God speaking to Moses, where he's instructed to give orders to Aaron, his sons, and the children of Israel. Directions on sacrifices. The first is that the only cattle, goat, or sheep that can be consumed among all of the populace are those animals sacrificed at the tabernacle. And considering that the population at the time of the exodus from Egypt was estimated by some sources to have been in the millions, either there were a lot of sacrifices at the temple, or people just weren't eating these animals. Of course, they still had manna and quail, but the restrictions didn't end there. There were to be no sacrifices of any type outside of the tabernacle. And this was the end of the family altar as had been seen throughout Genesis and the permanent establishment of the priestly class. Non-Hebrews were not allowed any sort of sacrifice, 
There were also regulations on the consumption of blood, as in, don't do it. Sorry, Brits, no blood sausage. So, why no blood? It was seen as being necessary for life, and life is given by God to the people and animals. When wild animals were killed as part of a hunt, where it is relatively common to drain their blood after the kill, this drained blood was to be covered with dirt. In hunting wild animals or slaughtering domestic ones was preferred over other methods of obtaining meat. If an animal died naturally or was killed by other animals, you shouldn't eat that meat, and a person who does so would have to be cleansed. And that's it for 17. And with that comes chapter 18, the chapter on marital relations. And I'm going to tread as lightly as possible, but if you have young ears tuning in, be safe and turn it off. I'll give you a second. Okay, seconds up. The chapter begins with God telling Moses to tell the people that they are expected to be different from the people of Egypt and Canaan, and he's holding them to his higher standard. The rules are about what you would expect. You shouldn't see your relatives naked, both blood and in-laws, and the text goes through all sorts of relationships. Then a reiteration of a couple of the cleanliness rules. Incest and adultery are also not allowed. Oh, and child sacrifices, well, they're not allowed either. Specifically child sacrifices to a Canaanite deity named Molech. Which gives me a topic for a future episode. Some translations don't say sacrifice, but instead forbid for the child to be given over to Molech, which is thought to mean to be dedicated to him. This has to be one of the more obvious rules given by God. Then there's verse 22 about men lying with men, and other acts that are not allowed. And that's enough for 18. Next, of course, is chapter 19, widely regarded as the most important chapter in all of Leviticus. Why? It gives the Israelite people the reason why God expects them to be holy, because He is holy. Then there are several more rules, many of which were given earlier some even in the Ten Commandments. No stealing, no lying, no idols, honor your parents. There are others, like no unjust judgments, no slander, no hate in your heart, no witchcraft, no fortune tellers. Then one that shows Christ read the passage. Love your neighbor as yourself. The golden rule which sums up most of the rules in the chapter. Many rules, but nothing too surprising except maybe making a garment from two different types of materials or planting two different seeds in a field. That's the third time, I think, that we've seen those. Oh, and no tattoos or hair rounded off on your temples or gashes on your flesh for the dead. And you have to be careful how you trim your beard. The chapter certainly provides insight into the culture at the time, and if only for that, it's worth a read. Next is chapter 20, and this is where the rules begin to get redundant again. Except for one exciting addition, punishments. Stoning, cutting off from the people, aka shunning, capital punishment for all sorts of offenses. And in several cases, a couple shall be made childless. No directions given on how, so it's assumed to be a punishment from God. 
So the chapter has only three punishments for a litany of sins. Banishment, death, or being childless. And in terms of quantity, most carried the death penalty. The Israelites didn't spend much on a prison system. The last chapter I'll summarize in this episode is 21. The passage is more about holiness and very specific rules for the sons of Aaron, the priests. The only dead people priests can mourn are their direct relatives. They cannot shave their heads or the edges of their beards. I'm not quite sure where the edge lies. There's a bit more of the death penalty, like when a priest's daughter participates in the world's oldest occupation. Apparently, this only applies towards the daughters of priests. The priests are to be extra holy. He can't have disheveled hair or tear his vestments. Unlike the common people who can handle the dead bodies of relatives, a priest can't do that for anyone, not even his parents. He can only marry a woman who has never been married before, no widows or divorcees. There are other restrictive marriage requirements for priests, but you should be getting the point. Then the rules for physical appearance of the priest, from the text itself. No one of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, one who is blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or one who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a blemish in his eyes or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. And that's it for chapter 21, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in chapter 22 and likely work through the rest of the book. You don't want to miss it. But before the outro, the few topics to be covered in a later episode. The Canaanite deity Molech, rock badgers, and the birds known as the cormorant and the hoopoe. That's it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.